0: So if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We are in the final part of Psalm 119. Just a few more lessons left, and then we'll be going to a brand new Sunday School series. But it has been a wonderful walk through this. I was just talking with a preacher the other night about Psalm 119, and he was saying that As a young man, his pastor had told him to go out in the middle of the forest, out in the middle of the wilderness, away from everything and just take a beautiful day and read Psalm 119 and he said it was one of the best things he ever done. We started talking about Psalm 119 and diving in deeper and he was getting excited and was saying how this Sunday school series is such a wonderful help especially to a book that he already loved and has already been a special help to him. And so we're praying that it would continue to do the same as we dive in deep, seeing how precious this is. So look with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and notice with me, 137. Psalm 119 and 137. The Bible says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure. Therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet Do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall Live, And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, mark a phrase that we find in Psalm 119 and 137. Psalm 119 and 137, it says, Upright are thy judgments. Upright are thy judgments. And with this, let's examine this psalm here in Psalm 119 and learn a little bit more about what God says through the psalmist Is that upright are thy judgments? The very first thing that we see here, which is very important, is that God's word is righteous or upright. God's word is righteous because God is righteous. God's word is righteous because God is righteous. Notice with me in the beginning of 137 Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. God is always right. God is a perfect God. Because God is always right, and because God is always perfect, God's word is also right. It is an extension of who he is. The Bible is tied directly to the character of God. Because God is righteous, therefore his word, which comes from God, is also righteousness. Now, righteousness is a quality in God that causes him to always say... And do that which is right. When God created the galaxies, he did it because it was right. When God created you, he did it because that was what was right. The things that God does is because of his righteousness. That means God's word is an extension of God's righteousness. Because he gave us his word, his word comes because he is righteousness. This means that the trust and reliability that we have in God's word is going to be directly proportional to the reliability we have in God's character. So if we believe that God is righteous, that means we also believe that God's word is righteous. Why? Because we trust who God is. Our opinion of him is going to be identical to what we think about his Bible. And so if we don't think God is a good God, we're not going to see his word as a good God. But the opposite is true. If you don't think God's word is right, if you think it's full of errors, then by default you also believe that your God is full of errors. You understand the character of God is tied into his word. You cannot separate the two. It is God's character because he does what's right. He has given us a book that is right. And when we say that his book is wrong, it's also because we believe that God can be wrong. Those two things are tied together. This is why the defense of God's word is such a big deal because this is the one thing that God has placed above his name. God's word is righteous because he is righteous. Notice again in verse um, 38, 138. Thy testimonies that thou has commanded are righteous and very faithful. Once again, one of the characteristics, the attributes of God is that God is faithful. God can't help but be unfaithful. Faithful is not what God does. Faithfulness is what God is And because God is faithful, His Word is also faithful. His Word is tied directly to God's character. And you cannot separate the two because of who God is. Notice in verse 142, "...Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth." Now, God's righteousness doesn't have an expiration date. God's righteousness doesn't stop. God's righteousness doesn't improve or diminish. He's righteous because he is perfect. His righteousness lasts forever. Therefore, the thing that he produced, his word, is also going to be righteous forever. Those things tie in together. Now, this is a big deal because there are times that people have a hard time believing God's word. Why do they have a hard time believing God's word? Because they have a hard time believing God. You see, it's all a reflection of our view of God. Now, we know that God's word is righteous no matter what people think about it. However, people have a different trust in the Bible because they have a different view of God. It all begins with God. It all ends with God. God is the goal. So you have someone who says, I hate God's word. By default they also hate God. You cannot love God and hate his word. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. You cannot separate the two. So if somebody is not obeying God's commandment, they can't turn around and say I love God. Those two things do not mix. God's word is directly tied to God's character. We have to understand that and seeing about God's word. This is why we could rejoice and trust in it because we trust in the character of the one who gave us his word. Something else that we see as we examine this passage is that the people are not righteous when they forget God's word. The people are not righteous when they forget God's word. 139. My zeal hath consumed me. Why? Because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. As the psalmist refers to his enemies, this verse implies that the enemies had known the Bible and then rejected God's word. It wasn't the idea that they were ignorant of God's word. They knew God's word and they understood that it came from God and yet they rejected it anyways. They said, I don't want to obey this. This isn't something I have an interest in. So they reject God's word. No wonder the psalmist is full of zeal. What a heartbreaking sight to behold uh, <coughs> to behold God's people, or people who had the truth and rejected it. It's a heartbreaking thing when you see people who show up in a church like this, and yet they're not reading their Bible. They're missing so much. Again, <coughs> the people aren't righteous when they forget God's Word. Why? Because God's word's tied to his character. God gave us his word. It's a direct reflection of God's character. So when they reject his word, they are rejecting God. Therefore, they're rejecting what is right. They are not righteous. They're missing out. What is the main purpose of the Bible, by the way? It's to reveal God to man. It's to let us know who he is. So when they reject God's word, they're rejecting God's revelation of himself. They don't want to know God. Because to know the God of the Bible is to interfere with the God they have in their mind. Remember we live in the spirit of antichrist. The word anti does not mean to to, uh, to be against. It carries the idea of replacing. That instead of having the God of the Bible they want the God of their own thinking. Their own movies, their own way of expressing things. And so they have to make a choice. Do I accept God's word and the character of the God who gave this or do I replace it with a different God in my own view? They have to choose which one is righteous, which one is true. And so to reject God's word is also to reject God. Anyone who rejects God's word is unrighteous. They're rejecting right things. When someone ignores God's word, as it talks about here in this passage, it's because God doesn't have the rightful place that he deserves in their life. God is not the top of the throne. Remember in Colossians 1.18, it says that the Christ is the head of the body of the church, that he may have the preeminence. The word preeminence carries the idea that he is number one. But not just number one on a list, he is the entire list. For example, some people may define preeminence that God is number one. So as long as he's preeminent, he's just number one in my life. So number one is God, and then after that my wife, then my kids, then my work, and blah, 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 blah. That's not exactly what it means. For example, my wife, if I went to her and said, Honey, out of all the women that I love, you're number one. Does she want to hear that? She wants to hear that she, I love her like I love no one else. When it speaks about God having the preeminence, he's not the top of the list. He's the entire list. We love him like we love no one else. His love is completely different. We love him like no one else. When God has his rightful place in our life, then we have no problems obeying God's word. When someone doesn't obey God's Word, it's because God does not have His rightful place in their life. It all begins with God. It all ends with God. God is the goal. So the problem is, is not trying to convince them to read the Bible. The problem is, is that they don't have a clear vision of God. They need to have that fixed. People who have no problems reading God's Word is people who already love God. Because they love God, they love His Word. People who don't love God's Word don't love God's word. and makes it simple. We make things complicated. Does God have his rightful place? That's a big deal because this God is the one who created the universe. He created you. And one day he's going to have everyone stand and give an account to him and judge them. That's a big deal to make sure he's in his rightful place because he's deserving of that having it When we purposely and willfully sin, by the way, it's because at the moment we're not regarding our God. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, it says before we could disobey God's word, we first must despise his word. We must have to come to the place where we said, Lord, I don't like your word. It's inconvenient to me. It's not what I want. Now that I lowered God's word in my mind, now I can step over it and disobey it. That puts a different picture in your mind, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That I have to purposely despise God's word. In fact, in that passage in Ezekiel, I think three times it uses that word despise to God's word. That changes everything. It's not that I'm purposely ignoring it. I have to despise it in order to go against it. And when I despise God's word, I have to also despise God and his character in order to do so. Something else that we learn from here is that God's word is righteous, so I love them. God's word is righteous, so I love them. Verse 140. The word is a very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Now, let's define this idea of purity. God's word is not pure because it has been refined. Some people misquote um, Psalm six. Sorry, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, where it says, Thy word is pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. And some people mistakenly teach that, that God's Word has had to go through a refining process. A lot of people may say, well, it's had to go through the different languages. It had to go through Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, whatever, into the English, and it had to be refined each and every time. That's not true. God's Word is not pure because it has been refined. God's Word is pure because it came from a pure source, which is God Himself. God is the author. God didn't need a first draft. When he said, Let there be light, he said, Wait, 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 that's not the right word. Let me think about it until I get the right word. God's smart enough to know what word he meant. God knew what he meant, knew what he wanted to get across. God didn't need a first draft or a second draft. God didn't need an editor like I do. I've already found mistakes in this lesson where I go, Oh, man. God didn't need an editor. He was able to write first time and have it perfect. He's a good God. He doesn't need that refining process like we do. Because everything God does is right the first time. Notice as it goes on in verse number 41. I am small and despised. Notice this. I am small. When we compare ourselves to God, we are very small. This is the correct view to hold. We need to see God as a big God. When we don't see him as a big God, then we feel like we could disobey him. Think about this. How big is God? Well, let's just imagine that (laughs) we're overlooking this field behind us. And each of those blades of grass out there is (coughs) is its own galaxy. And then, on each of those blades of grass, there's a dew droplet. And each of those um, (coughs) dew droplets would be the (coughs) solar system that we live in. And inside of the dew droplets, there is a dust nuclei. And that happens to be the planet we live on. And inside of that grass field, where in a specific grass, they have a dew droplet. Inside of the dew droplet, you have a... um, you have a um, dust nuclei that's the um, <coughs> excuse me that the planet that we live on inside of the dust nuclei you could see that it is made up of atoms and you go look into the atoms and you find that's the state that we live on and then from the atom, you have an electron that goes around it. And then that electron happens to be the town that we're in. And inside of that uh, electron, there's like a little chip uh, put out of it. And that's the building that we're in. You understand? Out of that big field of grass, out of all of those blades of grass, and all, <laughs> all of the... The dew droplets and inside of it the dust nuclei that inside of it we would have the atoms and then the electron and all. And then imagine inside of that little corner of that electron some little pipsqueak saying, Listen here God, I don't have to obey you. Who are you to tell me what to do? You know how small we truly are. How dare we try to tell God. How things should be done. We are so small. We're as if nothing in the sight of God. In fact, in the Bible, the way that it describes man from God's perspective is like we're grasshoppers. Like we're dust. As if we're nothing. Because in the sight of God, we are so very small. And yet, we want to tell God what to do. But when we see how small we are and we see how big God is, it's easy to love God. Think about out of all those blades of grass and all of those dew droplets and all of the dust inside of those dew droplets, that God still loves me individually and personally. I could love a God who can out of all of that still cares about me. That is a good God. And a big God. I should love him because of that. It says I'm small and despised. The psalmist sees himself as despised because He's rejected of the world. Jesus told the disciples that the world was going to reject them because they're not of the world. The world will constantly belittle and scorn those who would follow God's word. And so he's small in God's sight. He's despised in the sight of the world. And so I have no other choice but to stay close to God's word. To be with him. In the middle of the world hating the psalmist, he's still determined to love God's word 140 thy word is very pure therefore the servant loveth it i'm small and despised yet do not i forget thy precepts now just something interesting about language here in the english language we we have a order syntax for grammar we would have <coughs> the subject then the verb, and then the direct object. In other languages, they have things switched for the idea of importance in the sentence. For example, I went shopping for milk. If my emphasis of this, that sentence is, was milk, then it would be milk shopping I. It sounds different for us, yeah. but it would show for the language of that time that milk was what I was putting the mi- emphasis on. Mm-hmm. So notice this sentence. It looks different for us. Not naturally how we would speak. It says, I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. The emphasis is not an I as much as it is in do not. I do not. Do not forget thy precepts. The emphasis is that, listen here, it's not on me. It's that I'm not going to forget the precepts. It's the forgetting not. The do not. I'm going to obey God's word. The more I'm rejected, the more I'm going to love God's word because of how small I am, because of how despised I am, that God's word is so great because of his character. I could trust in him. Notice with me in 143. Trouble and anguish have taken hold of me. Think of this word picture. You have trouble and you have anguish and they've taken hold on you. Trouble and anguish are Satan's jailers. Two of Satan's favorite jailers. They use them to imprison our souls. So think about trouble. Some people go through life from one crisis. To another crisis, to another crisis, to another crisis, to another crisis. That's how they live their life. All they can see is I'm in this crisis, now I'm in this crisis, now I'm in this crisis. And they're like the um, uh, chicken little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Everything's falling apart. Look at me. Oh, look how horrible it is. Oh, look how, oh. And their emphasis is that crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. That's not how God wants you to live. But that's a jailer. That's something that takes a hold of you, is trouble after trouble, that all I could see is all the trouble that I'm in, all the things that happen to me, oh, how bad things are. You ever need an example of it to see for yourself? Allow yourself to be in a quiet room, there's other people in there, and no one's saying anything, what is usually the first thing we end up talking about? Troubles, complaining. And we use that as our starting point. Why? Because that's the first thing we're thinking of. Instead of the goodness of God, there are many people who go off trouble after trouble, after crisis, after crisis, after crisis, and that's where they spend their lives. They're grabbed a hold of by this jailer of trouble. The second one is anguish. May we also put in there bitterness, because anguish comes from the bitterness. Unforgiveness. That this grabs a hold of people's life and they can't move forward because they can't get over a situation or a person or an issue. It holds them back. Sometimes people will say, why isn't so-and-so moving forward? Why can't I get them to go forward? Because they're taken a hold of. They've got jailers holding on to them. Anguish and bitterness is something that roots them and keeps them from advancing forward. They can't be the Christian they ought to be because they're held back because of bitterness, because of anguish. They can't let go and they can't move forward. They're stuck. They're in that one place in their life for the rest of their life. Or they're held down by trouble, trouble after trouble after trouble. That we could see these jailers taking a hold of them. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me. Yet. I like that word yet. Yet. Thy commandments are my delights. The psalmist is going through troubles. And he's going through lots of issues. But notice the best way to get free of them is the golden key of God's word. Yet. 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 I'm not putting my emphasis on the trouble and I'm not putting my emphasis on the anguish and the bitterness. I'm going to keep the word of God and I'm going to make it my delights. You understand? It's hard to quote scripture like, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then say, let me tell you how bad God has been really to me. Amen. Those things don't work. You can't love God's word and still complain about how awful things are. They don't work together. And so the way to free yourself from that bitterness, from anguish, from looking at disaster to disaster, is to look at God's word. And as we look at God's word, because it's a reflection of who God is, God is a good God. And our attention is now back on Him, rather than us and the circumstances and the things around us. That the way to free ourselves from those jailers is to learn to love God's word. By the way, you won't love God's word if you won't obey it. How do you get someone out of this bondage? Get them obeying God's word. Get them to love God's word. Get them to take the next step. They could break free of those jailers with God's help. He could pull down the strongholds. God is mighty. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. If you don't mind, let's one more thing. God's word is righteous. And through them I shall live. God's word is righteous and through them I shall live. Notice with me in 144. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. Because God is righteous and because God is perfect, God's word is is righteous, and is perfect. And because God will last forever, God's word will also last forever. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Forever, O God, thy word is established in heaven. The Bible lives forever because its author is eternal. It will outlive heaven, and it will outlive earth. Our Bible is eternal. God's word is righteous and eternal. And then, because of this, the psalmist says, Give me understanding and I will live. Give me understanding and I shall live. God's word gives us the strength to live for today. And the message of eternal life is everlasting. That God has promises for us that we're going to be affected by for all eternity. That we could trust in God's word. Now, all of this comes to is that why? Do we trust God's word? Because it is wrapped up in his character. How we view God's word is directly proportional to how we see God. So, how do you see God? Well, it will show up in your obedience to God's word, your love for God's word, your yeah to God's word. It's all for the idea how do you see God?